0: Good morning. It's good to see you guys as the ushers come to take the offering. I wanted to just remind you of something. First of all, we had, I'm going to call the violin a fiddle and a banjo in worship today. It's awesome. Mark Twain once said, a gentleman is someone who knows how to play the banjo but chooses not to. And I consider that him Wrong. I like the banjo. Um, So I wanted to remind you about something. You know, we've got Easter coming up in two weeks. Yes, church. So we always want to remind you because our order, our times change on Easter. And we just don't want to make, we want to make sure you're aware of that. You know, normally we gather in these two services. We're going to have four services this Easter. uh, Five, I guess, if you include Good Friday. So we'll have Good Friday service on the 19th at 7 p.m. Love for you to join us for that. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to have four services that morning. So the first one is 8 a.m. That's the early one. So 8 a.m., we want you to be aware of that. Then 9.30 will be the second one. And during that second service, we'll actually have two services running simultaneously. We'll be in here. We'll also have a service with live worship. The preaching will be via video in the in the cafe down the hall, down, out those doors, down that direction. So I want you to be aware of that. That's often our most attended service. So if you're inviting friends and you guys are coming, just know that there will be We hope, because of that ample space, we just want there to be room for everybody to come and worship the king on that day. Uh, And then our last service will be at 11 a.m. So just want you to be aware of that. We do have these available for you if you'd like to pick one up as a reminder for yourself to put on the fridge, but also it's got all the service times and everything. But also if you want to invite a friend and give this to them so that they can remember service times, that sort of thing, we just want to make sure you're aware of that. You can grab these at the desk out in the lobby if you'd like to have a few. All right, let's pray. Let's dive into God's word together. So we've just sung, crown him, crown you. What a good thing to be reminded of, that those crowns don't belong on our heads, they belong in yours. And so we want to offer you our praise and our adoration today. We've done that in singing, now we want to do it through examining your word and we pray, Lord, that we, we come to your word knowing that it has authority over us, because it's your word, it's not the words of men, it's yours, and so we Come, and I pray as the preacher now that you would help me to preach what is true according to your word, to come underneath its authority and help us as hearers of your word to then become doers of your word. We thank you for your servant David and how he points us to you, King Jesus. We thank you for the way you teach us to handle authority, that you share authority, Father, that you grant your people authority in this world, and we pray that we'd wear it rightly we pray that we would wear authority in our places of work and in our homes and in our relationships, that we'd wear it well, with humility, in a way that honors you. And we pray that you train us in that. Use your word today to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you got your Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's kind of a little less than halfway through the Old Testament, if you're looking for it, if you're new to it. So wanted to remind us then that we are in beginning a, a series, or we've been in a series for a couple weeks, on King David. Uh, he is the second king of the nation of Israel around 1000 B.C., so long time ago. And we are looking at his life, and we're not just going moment by moment through his life, but what we are doing is what we consider kind of a life map exercise, which is to say, what are some of the big moments in his life What are the snapshot moments that, you know, if you were, David looking back as an old man over the history of your life, you say, these are the ones that shaped me. These are the ones that were so significant that God chose to record them in Scripture. Uh, But even among those recorded in Scripture, perhaps some that, that stand out even among those others. And so we're looking at a few of those snapshot moments. And the first week, we looked at David's anointing when Samuel the prophet came and anointed him to be king. And he didn't necessarily know what he was being anointed for in that moment. But we saw something really key which I think is both encouraging and daunting for us, is that when God chooses a king, he doesn't look like men look at the outside appearance, but the scripture said that he looks at the what, church? He looks at the heart, right? Is that a bit daunting? Yeah, he sees our hearts. He sees them. He knows them, but it's also encouraging, I think, because he's shaping our hearts as well. And so we saw that in David's anointing, but then we looked in in the next week, we looked at David's life. We saw The famous story of David and Goliath. And Dan gave us a good corrective to remind us this isn't about how we defeat the giants in our life. This is about the fact that God can be trusted and he's all powerful and strong and he shapes our hearts as we face those giants. And so uh, what we saw there is that the king God chooses is really filled with faith in the midst of facing hard things. The king that God chooses is a king who's full of faith. When everybody else in the army said, trembled in fear because they couldn't face Goliath, it was David, this young shepherd boy, who said, who is he to defy the armies of the living God? And so he knew the battle was the Lord's, and so we saw that about the king that God chooses. And this week we're going to see, we're going to really cover a pretty broad swath of of 1 Samuel. We're going to actually cover beginning in verse 18 all the way to chapter 31. Don't groan. All right, we'll be all right. We'll get there. We're going to look at a few snapshots in these chapters uh, that are marked by a theme. Now, here's the deal. We might expect, here's what we've seen so far, right? David is anointed to be king. That's a pretty good deal. And then he wins a major victory, I mean, over a giant that no one else wants to face. He wins the day. And you would think, well, what's next? The throne, surely, right? I mean, next is kingship. Here it comes. Like, look at what I've done so far. And we are going to be sorely disappointed if that's our expectation, because the next chapter 18 through 31 of David's life is going to be in many years now, is going to be marked by trial. That's the next major step in David's life. It's going to be trial. And so, the thing that we're going to see about the kind of king that God chooses is that God always trains the king he chooses through trials. And I say always very intentionally. Not sometimes, but always. I want you to remember, this is my reminder, every week as we think about the king God chooses, please do remember that we're not just talking about having official positions of authority. We're talking about any place that God gives us authority. And that might be as a parent, it might be just as a friend who has the authority to speak into another friend's life. It might be as a boss at work. You have authority, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you recognize that you have authority as someone who has been given the spirit of God? You have a certain type of authority to speak into this world. Now I know that we live in a day and an age where the idea is kind of keep your faith out of the public sphere, keep it out of the public arena, which is a misnomer. No one can really do that, by the way. Uh, but given that voice, which is pretty loud in our culture, sometimes we get cowed down by that as if we're not these people who are imbued with and, and indwelt by a massive type of authority. We are people of authority. Do you understand that? You are a person, if you're in Christ, you are a person who has been given massive amounts of authority to be wielded really well. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't, we don't wear it all that well. And so David is, provides a good example for us how to do that. All that to say, this is about how do we use the authority God gives us? How do we use the authority God gives us? And what we're going to see today is that God always trains the, those he gives authority to, he always trains them through trials he always trains them through trials. So we'd love it if David perhaps, you know, moved right into the throne, but we're not going to find that today. We're going to find that David's going to endure some significant trials. Now, let's remember that trials have a work to do. God gives them to us because they do a work in us, but in order for that work to be completed, we have to understand that trials are there to do that work. And if we don't have that sort of philosophy about trials, if we don't understand that trials exist to bring about a good end, if we don't agree with that or understand it, that, that that's a biblical principle, what happens is we end up rushing out from underneath those trials too early, too soon. We'll take any, any escape hatch we can get, right? And that, that's normal when it comes to trials, but the key thing is to stay in trials until God removes them. Now, how many of you want to groan at that? It seems to be one of the messages of David's life. Stay in the trials until God removes them. He will bring it about. The second thing I want you to see and understand before we even get into the kind of nitty-gritty of some of these stories we're going to look at today is this. Is that particularly when it comes to authority, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons that God gives authority is because power has a corrupting effect on people. Yes, you know this. You've all heard the cliched statement, but it's cliched for a reason that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. There's something about power that tends to draw us. I was watching a biography this week and there was a lawyer in this biography. I think his name was Ray Cohen. I'm maybe getting his name wrong. It doesn't matter. It's unimportant. But they interviewed him. He's a pretty powerful guy in New York society as as a lawyer. And they asked him, what do you, like, what do you want most? And his response was, it was like unabashed. He said, I want power. And, you know, most of us, like, hide our, like, we, we hide that. We know we're supposed to, like, be more humble about it. He was like, he's like, I kind of appreciated it because he's like, no, I just want power. And I want it because I can do what I want when I get power. And I was just like, I almost just like, whoa, but that's so true. There's something about power. So he tasted it. He wanted it. He made no bones about saying he wanted it. And he wanted it so he could do what he wanted. And I was like, you know what? That's what, that's what power does power corrupts. Here's the reason God trains, always trains his leaders, his kings, through trial. It's because trials, what trials do, is they prepare us. They serve as as a vaccine, if you will, against the corrupting effects of power. You see, David is going to become a man of great power. He's going to sit on the throne. And he's going to control many lives. And when he does... He is going to need the work that only the trials that, that served him well and trained him in advance of his coming into power, only those trials could train him to the place that, he was, that, that would help him overcome the temptations that power would bring to him when he had it. Do you see what I'm getting at? Now we're going to find that David, even David, does not wield power perfectly or well. In fact, he makes some massive mistakes, and we're going to come to those but the reason god trains his leaders through trial is because it serves as a vaccine of sort against of sorts against the corruption that power brings so trials are there to train us we're going to look at 3 snapshots from David's life <clears throat> the first one's in first 1 Samuel 18 two of these are probably if you've if you've read your Bible before they're probably pretty familiar and one is a little less familiar it's something we kind of read past but I think it's significant in David's life so I want to point it out too but let's start with a, a pretty familiar one. Uh, one first Samuel chapter 8 verse 6 through 16 so look with me <clears throat> at this story we're going to learn about these trials in David's life. In verse 6, it says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. So it's a, it's a victory party. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul is struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. All right, if you're David, you don't like that they just sang that. This is, not gonna, this is not a good idea, right? You're thinking, shh. By the way, he hasn't struck down 10,000s. How many has he struck down? One, <laughs> so far. He's a shepherd boy with a sling and a stone. He killed a giant, but he's got one, but they're giving him 10,000. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000s, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom and Saul eyed David from that day on. Now we're going to find that Saul becomes the reason for a lot of the trials of David. And one of the things that is important to recognize is, Saul is, does Saul seem pretty petty there to you guys? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Don't be shy. Yeah, absolutely. Right. He seems pretty petty there, but we need to remember something as well. Not to give Saul a break necessarily, but in chapter 15, which we didn't read, Samuel comes to Saul because Saul has done something sinful and God has rejected Saul from being king. And when he does, Samuel says to him, God has torn the nation away from you. In other words, the throne. You're not gonna be king anymore. And he's going to replace you with one of your neighbors and give that neighbor the kingdom. And so when Saul says... What more could he have but the what? The kingdom. What do you think he's hearing echoing in his ears? It's Samuel's prophecy. He's thinking to himself, I think I now see who it is that's going to tear the kingdom away from me. So Saul is on his guard. David is dangerous to Saul, and Saul knows it. And then verse um, 10. The next day... A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. That's something David had done for him uh, for a little while. And as uh, as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him." So like I said, this story represents the beginning of David's trials because Saul's jealousy is the primary source. And we see why Saul is uh, perhaps jealous and uh, a little worried about what David represents as he sees perhaps the one who's now going to take the kingdom after him. And he doesn't know what that means. Does that mean this one's going to try and this person's going to try and kill me to overthrow me? Like what is this process going to look like? That's not been described. So Saul is incredibly wary. But one of the things that we learn from this story, friends, is this, is that sometimes the trials that we encounter may come from the people who are in leadership over us. They may be the very source of our trials, and that makes it incredibly difficult. Now, I don't want you to only hear that someone who's in leadership causing your trials. that's gonna be the primary way that we're gonna see David's trials come about. But trials are trials, I mean, when it comes to training. But in particular, one of the sad realities is that someone, perhaps even in our service to God, someone who claims to be serving God, someone who has at some point been anointed by God to be his leader, can be the very cause of our trials because as they perhaps have walked in a, at a distance from God, and God begins to show favor to a new leader, jealousy can rise up and cause that old leader to begin to persecute that new possible leader, that new young anointed one. That can be really hard That can when that's a reason for our trials. Those may be things you experience at work. They may be things you experience in family. Unfortunately, they're things that churches experience on a regular basis, and it's just one of the sad realities of leadership in the church at points. But that's David's scenario. Did you notice, was it verse 12, when, uh, yeah, and it says, Saul was afraid of David. Why was Saul afraid of David? Because the Lord's hand of favor was on him, basically. He saw David winning battles. He saw David being effective. He saw David being a good leader. He saw, he saw God's hand on David in the way it used to be on him. And that was too much for Saul to bear. And so the spears started getting thrown. Now there's two things about this story that absolutely amaze me above all others. The first is this. It says that Saul threw his spear at David and David evaded him twice. Do you know what that means? That means he threw the spear at him and David went back and started playing music again. He did not run and flee. He stuck around to get a second helping of the spear. When I read that, by the way, in chapter, the next chapter, chapter 19, guess what's going to happen again? The spear is going to get thrown a third time, right? Here's the thing. David is underneath the authority of a crazy man, of a leader who is unjust and insane, and even when that leader throws a spear at David, David does not take it as an indication that it's okay for him to leave. Now David is going to leave eventually, but he doesn't leave immediately. How many of us would stick around for a second helping of a spear throwing? I don't think so. I'm out after, after the first time, I'm done. And David says, no, this is the king. This is the Lord's anointed, and I'm in his service. So my job is to stay. And if spear throwing is part of the job, I'll learn to dodge spears. It's pretty remarkable. Now the second thing that amazes me about the story every time is not just that David stayed, for a while anyway, stayed until he absolutely couldn't stay any longer. It's not just that. The second thing that always amazes me is that David didn't throw the spear back. I mean, what do you do when someone throws a spear at you? Let's, let's speak metaphorically here for a moment. When someone throws a verbal spear at you, what do you do? You throw a bigger verbal spear back. And David won't do it. Because here's what David knows. The second you become a king who throws spears, it's really hard to do anything else. The second you become the kind of king who throws spears to protect your authority or to get authority, it becomes really hard to do anything else. And David knows it. I think the story reveals that David knows it and it reveals that Saul doesn't know it. Saul is raving mad with jealousy and because he is, he becomes a spear thrower. Friends, I want to encourage you, avoid becoming a spear thrower at all costs. Avoid becoming a spear thrower at all costs. Perhaps, we don't know this, perhaps what David knows is if i start throwing spears back and take the king take the kingship through violence the kingship will be taken from me through violence it's interesting to me that david is going to be the first successor to the throne of israel right saul's the first king david's going to be the second he's going to set a precedent he knows now he knows he's anointed to be king saul has acknowledged it jonathan his son has acknowledged it it's been acknowledged in numerous places and david has to understand how does that transition of power take place. David's going to set an example for all of the history of Israel now about how power will be transitioned from one generation to the next. And if David chooses to overthrow Saul by force and through bloodshed, my guess is we would see that pattern lived out again and again and again and again. And so David chooses something different. He won't throw the spear back. He won't even leave when the spear is thrown. At least not initially. I'm astounded by that that's a different kind of character here's the thing the thing that i think this story in terms of like the kind of king god chooses i would say the trials that train the kind of king god chooses roots out of that king a sense of entitlement to power that they root out of that king a sense of entitlement to power because the thing david knows is this it's up to god when and where and if i come to the throne that's up to god that's not my throne to take, it's his to give, should he choose, and I will wait upon him to bring it about. I will wait upon him to bring it about. And because David knows that and he gets it, it enables him to endure trials and it rids him of this sense of, I'm entitled to the throne. Sometimes we act as if we're entitled to authority, and we are not. At least, not to positions of authority. We have an authority in Christ that is ours spiritually. But none of us is entitled to any position of authority. But sometimes we act like we are. And we act like we're entitled to it way, way before we actually are ready for it. And friends, I just want to tell you God will bring trials to train that sense of entitlement out of you because entitlement is dangerous. It puts people in positions of authority where they're only gonna harm those that they lead. Look, you can be entitled and gather a group of people around you. You can, you really can. If you're talented, if you're gifted, if you're winsome, you can gather people around you. They will listen to you, follow you. They'll like what you have to say. But as long as that sense of entitlement remains, you will become a Saul, you will not be a David. And here's the deal. Everyone thinks they're David. No one thinks they're Saul, but you don't really know. Until time tells. So, here's what I'll say. As God uses trials to root entitlement out of us, I'll say young men and young women, it is good, it is good to desire to lead in God's kingdom and for his purposes. That is a good desire. You should want it. You should desire it. It is good. But I also want to tell you this. You are not entitled to lead, perhaps as soon as you think you are. Find someone who does what you believe you're called to do for God's purposes and follow them and stay under their leadership longer than you think you need to. Stay under their leadership longer than you think you need to. If you will do that, when you are given authority, you will find that you will exercise it much more effectively. And you will probably, hopefully, not be a spear thrower. Because that's a dangerous place to get to. Here's the deal. If you, start throwing, if you start throwing spears, you know that you're sowing the seeds of having spears thrown at you. That's what will happen. Now let me say to older men and women, perhaps those of you who are in seats of power now, who hold authority now. Do not view the leaders that God is raising up from a younger generation with animosity. Don't view them as a threat. View them as a gift. Platform them. Give them voice. Give them authority. Give them a seat at the table. And listen, they may not be ready to wield authority broadly yet, but you've got to train them. In fact, that's the point. And when God replaces you with them bow out of the way graciously. Because the very point for all of us who are followers of Jesus is to raise up new followers of Jesus and more of them that come behind us and do it better than we did it. And do you know what doesn't serve that purpose very well? Getting older and saying, they just don't get it and I'm never going to relinquish any leadership to them. Now you know the temptation I'm talking, I see some of the smiles out there. Because you know the temptation is to always look with disdain for some reason about how they. Do you remember when you were 18? Yeah, you didn't get it either. Neither did I. I look back at at 21 year old Trent and I think, oh my goodness, I thought I was ready for some authority. I was nowhere close to ready for authority. It would have been dangerous if somebody gave me large amounts of authority at that point, (coughs) it would have been dangerous. Didn't mean I wasn't gifted. Didn't mean I wasn't called. Didn't mean I didn't have abilities. They just needed to be sharpened. They needed to be raised up. And I needed to sit underneath someone else's authority longer than I thought I needed to. That's what I needed to do. So young men and young women, hear me. Stay longer than you think you need to. Older men and older women, raise them up. Give them voice. Give them opportunity. Give them authority. Don't view them as a threat. Don't throw spears. Scene number two from David's life that we're going to look at while he's on the run now. Right? Saul starts throwing spears. Eventually David's going to leave. By the way, it's worth noting that when David leaves, he leaves alone. Did you note at the bottom of that story that we heard, David was loved by everybody. Yes, you remember that? He was loved by everybody. You think David could have collected a group of people that would have helped him overthrow Saul? Probably, probably wouldn't have been that hard. David's a folk hero at this point. Everybody loves him. If he wants to overthrow the king, he can probably collect an army and he can form a coup and take care of business. But he doesn't do that. And when it's finally time to leave, when it's just so dangerous that his life's so in jeopardy that he can't stay any longer, he leaves alone. He doesn't throw verbal spears at Saul to say, why don't you guys come with me? Why don't everybody gather around me? He doesn't do that. He leaves alone. Recognize from that that one of the things David's life is telling us is as you're in the midst of trials, there's probably going to be loneliness. There's probably going to be loneliness that's going to come with those trials. Now, the next scene is uh, in verse 20. And here's here's the lesson, right? The lesson is that trials... Right, They don't just root out entitlement. That was point number one. But point number two is that trials produce a broken heart in God's king. Trials produce a broken heart in God's king. And that's probably to be expected. And you see the connection, I'm sure, already. Is the importance of that is that a broken heart is a heart that is humble, and a humble heart is a heart that God uses. God does not use a proud heart. He uses a humble heart. And trials bring brokenness to a heart. But here's the thing that's particularly unique, I think. All of us sort of expect that trials will bring a certain level of brokenheartedness to us, but what you're about to see is this, is that it's not really the trials that David endures himself that break his heart, it's the cost of those trials on the people he loves. That's where your resolve really gets tested. When you're someone with authority for the kingdom, recognize this, your leadership won't just cost you and your training for leadership through trials, it won't just cost you it will cost the people you love most. There will always be a cost to the people you love most. Without exception, there will be a cost. And it will test your resolve. Will you follow? It's easier to say, you know what, yes, I can bear the weight of that cost. But when you look at your kids, your spouse, your friend, and you recognize that there's a cost on them For your leading, it's a whole different ballgame. I think it's really hard. Listen to the cost to David's closest loved ones. David and Jonathan, there's a great description of their relationship. It was just before the section we read in chapter 18. It says that David and Jonathan were such close friends that their souls were knit together. Now, men, let me speak to you here for a second. Some of you hear language like that and you get a little uncomfortable. You think, I'm not even sure... Like is it like would I say that about my wife? Like my soul is knit together with her. That's really intimate language. And what the scriptures are trying to tell us there is that there's a kind of friendship between men that is meant to exist, that feels like your soul being knit to another man's, and women between women. But I think you're better at this than us. Okay, men, that kind of closeness between brothers. It is, and the weird—the world takes Jonathan and David's friendship and twists it into this weird stuff, into the stuff that it's not. They try to make it something romantic, or this is two men whose hearts are for the Lord, who are bound together because of it. And I love that, but there's a cost on Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son, and listen to what happens. So, David recognizes he's in danger, and so he skips this dinner, this formal sort of state dinner, if you will. Saul recognizes he's missing and he calls Jonathan out about it and Jonathan says that he's given him permission to go and Saul recognizes that Jonathan is essentially helping David and here's the conversation that ensues. Starting in chapter 20, verse 30. It says, then Saul's anger was kindled Against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? but Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death, you think? And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Do you see what's just taking place? This is the heir to the throne. There's two costs that David's leadership mean for Jonathan. Number one, Jonathan will never be what? He'll never be king. And that's what Saul recognizes. You'll never be king as long as he's alive. And Jonathan says, so? I mean, that seems to be Jonathan's attitude. Jonathan is one of the unsung heroes of Scripture, by the way. Just the humility. By the way, he's going to die with his father trying to protect his life in battle. That's what's going to happen for Jonathan. You want to talk about a man of character, so here's this guy, and he says, you'll never be king. He says, David's king. David's supposed to be king. He, he seems to have no ambition for the throne. He seems fine with that. The second cost to him is that it causes his own father to try and kill him. It creates a fracture between Saul and Jonathan, and that fracture is only there because of David's anointing, because of David's call to leadership. The person David loves most in this life is quite possibly Jonathan, and the person who pays one of the greatest costs for David's anointing to be king is Jonathan. It says later when Jonathan goes and warns him that, that, um, you know, there's this whole elaborate plan they have worked out about how he's going to warn him, And he does that. Then they have a moment together before David's got to run and flee for his life. And in that moment, it says, and Jonathan and David wept, but David wept more. Like it was a weeping competition, you know. It's like David wept more. David is deeply wounded because what does he recognize? My friend has to bear the cost of my leadership, of my calling, of my anointing. Later in chapter 22, I won't read it for you because I'm gonna save us a minute or two here, but in chapter 22, verses one through four, what happens is David's out in the wilderness. His parents and his brothers come to him and they say, it doesn't even say what they say, they just come to him essentially because they know he's on the run and David takes them and has to make them refugees in a foreign country named Moab under the protection of the king of Moab, requesting him to protect them because Saul is on the hunt for David and what does David assume that's gonna mean for his parents? probably, that they're going to come under the knife as well. And so David, seeking to protect his parents, puts them under, he says, takes them out of the country. They become refugees because of David. There are some great psalms. Some, if you want a great assignment for the week, here it is. Go read some of the psalms that David writes while he's on the run from Saul. Psalm 11. Psalm 54. Psalm 56. Psalm 57. You're noticing a trend, a lot of the 50s. Right? These are some of the Psalms that David writes and you see the agony and the desperation but also the confidence that God is his fortress and will protect him. So here's the deal, friends, is trials train the king of God's choosing because they eliminate entitlement but also because they create a broken heart and that broken heart is created by the cost that is borne, not just by the king in training, the leader in training, but by the ones that leader in training loves. There will always be a cost. Now look, you gotta find a middle ground here because there's some stories of some early missionaries like David Livingston and you heard the name David Livingston when the first missionary to Africa out of England and and we kind of sing his hoorays and stuff. But it was like David Livingston had no category for God's calling to protect and provide for his family. He didn't see his kids for decades he had no, almost no relationship with them because he was traveling Africa trying to end the slave trade and find, trying to find new routes for evangelism and doing all these sorts of things. He dragged his wife to the point of she got sick and he just kept dragging her around until she died of malaria, okay? There is a category that we're supposed to have for protecting those God calls us to love and that are closest to us, Yes? But the other side, which I think we're more in danger of these days is this, is I watch young men and young women and old men and old women honestly, I watch people who are called by God to things that the second it costs someone they love something, they're out. The second it costs someone they love, they're out. They can't bear that, any. they can't bear it. And so they're done. The second they have to move the family far away, or the second they have to do the thing that costs them the financial you know, stability, or the thing that is gonna cost them in some way, shape, or form, and, and they don't want their family to have to bear it, or their friend to have to bear it, they leave it behind. Now, there's, you understand there's a middle ground between those two things, right? You have to expect that those you love will bear a cost. That has to be part of your conversation has to be part of the understanding. The last little scene that we're gonna look at here is gonna teach us, it's a, it, this is a more famous one, but it's this, it's gonna teach us that trials test the commitment of God's king to his commands. So flip to chapter 24. Trials test the commitment of God's king to his commands. And this is a pretty famous one. Around our house, we act out Bible stories. We have young kids and they love acting them out. Brings them to life, makes it fun. Uh, and so they love acting this one out, and you'll see why here in just a minute. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel, and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself, and you know what that means, and that's why my kids like to act this one out. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. You should note, we don't have that recorded anywhere in scripture that God actually ever said that to David. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he recognized the symbolism of cutting off the corner of the robe was like saying, I'm taking the kingdom from you. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. It's almost like he's trying to remember it so much that he repeats it. This is the Lord's anointed. This is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. All right, so what happens after that is that Saul leaves the cave and David calls out to him and he says, look, you know, he recognizes, Saul recognizes David could have taken my life. He chose not to. Saul seems repentant. He goes away. Two chapters later, Saul's chasing him again. Same deal, same story, all over again, right? We're right back where we started. Think about this moment for a minute. Okay, here's the real remarkable thing. The circumstances of David's moment seem like a great opportunity for him, right? Now, let me show you a picture of Engedi. This is what Engedi looks like. That's a big space. Do you see that? Do you think it's just happenstance that Saul happened to go into the cave where David and his men just happened to be? I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with God had Saul land in that cave, but not so that David could take his life and become king, but because God was going to test David's heart. And he was going to determine one thing about David. David, will you obey my commands? Commands like you shall not murder. Commands like you shall not raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. Are you going to obey those, or are you going to listen to your circumstances and what they seem to look like is made available to you. Now think about the temptation in this moment because this is the moment. David can stop running if he takes the sword to Saul. He has him at his mercy. There is no more vulnerable position than the one Saul is in. He can take his life, end it, probably walk out of the cave and say, you're all gonna be with me now and all his running, all his trials perhaps might be over. Can you think about the temptation of that? If you've been out in the wilderness for months with a bunch of kind of there's an odd group of guys that have assembled around David to say the least all right i think the temptation would have been immense but what david knows is this is god's will god's will is not primarily revealed by my circumstances they are revealed by what he has communicated to me already in his word and he refuses to let his circumstances interpret god's will more than he lets god's revealed will in his word declare to him what is true and what he should do in that moment. It's deeply important. See, trials train us, men and women. Trials train us, and they test us to see whether or not we will obey God's revealed will in the Scriptures rather than looking at whatever our circumstances seem to say to us is a better way or an opportune way. And let me just tell you, there are going to be lots of times where If you read the circumstances the way you want to read them, you can get what you want pretty fast. But if you understand that God has revealed something and he's declared it and that that is his will, right, the most obvious one, single men and women, is what? The most obvious one is marriage. Will you take the shortcut and just, it's not hard to find someone. Do you know what it is hard to do? It's hard to find a godly one it's hard to find a godly one but god has said he's declared it he's revealed he's already he's already told you his will whatever your circumstances are they don't dictate god's revealed will above what the scriptures have already told us it's a deeply important message for anyone who wants to lead cuz here's the deal if david doesn't believe this how is he going to be a king every whim he has will become god's leading And when you're the king and you think every whim you have reveals God's leading, guess who gets impacted really badly by that? Everyone you have authority over. But if you become a king who knows how to wield authority underneath the authority of God's revealed will in scriptures, your people will thrive. Your people will thrive. They will rejoice that you are king. They will rejoice that you have authority because you submit to authority and know how to do it. Deeply important. So let's close up shop with this and then we're gonna come to the table now. I want you to see something because David becomes our good example. He becomes our good example in trial of how how to exist under trial, not rush out from underneath it. But he points us, he points us to an even better king. We've talked about this and we'll talk about it every week. He points us to our true king who endured trial. Do you know that the author of Hebrews wrote this about Jesus, who though he was very God of very God, Hebrews says, he learned, he learned obedience through suffering and was made perfect through suffering. In other words, even though he's God in the flesh with no flaw, the scriptures say that in his, in his humanness, there's a way in which he was brought to maturity. That's the perfection it's talking about, growth in maturity. There's a way that the very son of God, when he was in the flesh, was brought to maturity through trials. And if that's true for him, should it not be true for us? And then listen to what Hebrews chapter 4 says, because we don't just have a great example in Jesus, and we don't just have a great example in David. We have a resource available to us that David never had. We have a resource available to us David never had. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, in other words, our trials, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, so what what Hebrews has just told us is, in Jesus we have one who has passed out of heaven, come down to earth, and has been through everything, anything you've been through, he's been through it. He's endured what we have not even fathomed And he's done it without sin. His trials, his temptations, he has endured them. He has passed the test. And then the result is this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see what he's saying? He's making a promise there. He's saying because of Jesus and what he's done, your true king, better than David, You have been given a resource, and that resource is you can go to the throne of God. You can go before the very King of kings and Lord of lords. And in him, you have access to a well of power and a well of patience and a well of perseverance and of comfort that will be made available to you as you go through trial. David endured trial, and he did it and was trained by it without that same level of resource. To be sure, he had a resource of access to God, but not in the way that we do. On this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have a whole new thing that's been given to us. And so we see Jesus who endured our trial and made access for us to the throne of God so that we would have access to patiently persevere in trial until God brings us out of those trials. Easily said, hard to do. But oh, what a, what a resource we have because of what Jesus has done. When we think about that as we come to the table now. So servers, if you'll come...